0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.
1: You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present the Diane Ray Show. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining me for the show today and taking a little break from watching impeachment hearings. Who wants to see that? It's like too, too crazy, too depressing. We're going to talk about a little bit of adventure today to get us off of that topic. And I'm going to take you into a world that most of us will probably never see but we're going to be introduced to an incredible place and meet some amazing people today so what happens when you let yourself open up to the universe and let spirit take control. Well, I just finished this amazing book called A Story of Karma that illustrates what kind of magic can happen in your life if you let things unfold. And it's something that I try to work on myself. I have a quote on my desk that I look at all the time by Lao Tzu and it says, do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? Not the easiest thing to do. Well, my guest today lived by this ideal, and he writes about his experiences in his book, A Story of Karma, Finding Love and Truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. And Michael Schau joins me today. This is a deeply personal travel memoir that he's written. It combines adventure, family creations, and spiritual encounters in two very different worlds, a Himalayan village and Vancouver, Canada, and how he just kind of let things unfold as they're supposed to unfold so michael joins me today welcome to the show
1: thank you very much dan thank you for having me on your show
0: well i'm glad we can talk about this book because i really loved it now do you like michael or mike
1: uh you can go with mike mike is you know? uh, is fine <laughs>
0: Either one. Okay, (laughs) I'll I'll call you Mike. So Mike, I just finished the book. And I really love this. And I think I think I said in in a social media post that this book will appeal to fans of stories like Into the Wild and Into Thin Air, you know, as well as people who love stories about love and, and connection and transformation. So it was really an interesting mix of of those kind of uh of genres i guess of those kind of categories and particularly Mm. it really struck me because i'm someone who's fascinated by adventurers and particularly mount everest and i've watched all the documentaries on everest and i marvel at people who have the courage to even attempt such a feat and not not to let people think that you climbed mount everest because you didn't but Mm. i mean just the fact that you even think about it and that you're out there climbing mountains um i just wanted to find out you know what is so compelling and and addictive about that for people
1: yeah yeah it's a great (laughs) something i'm I'm still trying to figure out myself (laughs) but um no, it, it's uh, it's something that like my relationship with nature has always been there since from a very young age and and I remember my my parents like my father in particular he used to drive my sister and I around uh, in one of those you know those camper vans with the, um, the like you could pop the top up and, <laughs> and camp in there and and so we, we'd spend a lot of time around North America the Rockies you know the coast mountains and we'd always be around these uh, these big mountains so I guess from a very young age I was I was kind of you know, I, I was familiar with that, that kind of environment and terrain. And, and so I got into hiking and, and that sort of thing. And it was always, you know, kind of living amongst nature. Um, but uh, when I was in, a teenager, I remember meeting this one gentleman, and we were out on a hike, and he said, uh, you know, Mike, I, w- I want to take you up a mountain. And, um, <clears throat> and so I, I, as a teenager, I had really no idea what that meant. <laughs> but, uh, but I said, you know, it sounded, sounded, great and let's go do it. And and so we left and he, he um you know, he, he gave me his ice axe and his, uh, his crampons, you know, the spikes you put on the bottom of your boots and, and a harness. And, and off we went and climbed this mountain. <clears throat> and it was the biggest thing I'd ever done at that age. I think I was 16 or 17 years old at that time. And and I remember, you know, when we were climbing up this steep slope, I, I had to kind of catch my breath and, and I looked to either side and there was just the, sort of the sweeping whiteness on both sides. The sun was just coming up. It was kind of, you know, glittering the snow <clears throat> the hard crusted snow and and uh and then I looked behind me over a shoulder and I remember seeing these distant peaks being illuminated by the the rising sun, kind of these orange and purplish hues and and in that moment, I just thought about wow, there's this whole world up here that we typically don't know about, and that's only accessible by our will to climb and that something just kind of clicked for, for me in that moment where i thought you know this this is it climbing mountains being up here in this world is um is it for me and and since then i've, I've never really looked back and i've just kind of i kind of dove into it um <clears throat> you know in very with, with the intensity and um yeah and, and my wife we um my wife chantal i met in university and she uh, she loved nature as well that's one of the connection points for us and Um, she was never, when we met, she wasn't really into mountain climbing, but, uh, that was something that she kind of took on, but she took it on in in a different way for her. It was more of a kind of an escape from the, um, the modern world or an escape from the, the rat race, so to speak. And, uh, just find that meditative flow out in nature. And, and, but for me at that time, it was kind of really pushing my senses you know i i, I love the heightened sensi- sensitivity i felt when i was out there i love the kind of the unknown so to speak um i love just you know tapping into that that natural environment on a very on a very raw kind of basis and um and yeah it's been with me ever since
0: so you were hooked at an, an early yeah. age
1: or, or your mm-hmm. early
0: 20s at least
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was I climbed mountains all through my 20s and into my 30s, and now I, I've just turned 40, and so I've just it's been part of my life. I, it's something I can't really live without. Actually, that first gentleman that that brought me out in the mountains, he he had a saying that um that kind of stuck with me, which he said, you know, he'd rather be, um he'd rather be in, in the mountains thinking about God rather than being in a church thinking about the mountains. <laughs> so right. the mountains kind of became my place of um, of yeah of, of deep uh, questioning and and you know discovering discovering the external place but also discovering the inner space.
0: Sure, that's your spiritual place. I mean a lot of people feel that way when they're out in nature and that's I've heard a lot of people say that you know that's my church where they'll go out and they'll hike whether it's the beach or the mountains and they really feel that connection and one of the mm-hmm. things I really loved about the book I mean maybe it's because I'm a Florida flatlander like I'm from the flattest place <laughs> ever and you know I've just always been interested in people that can well and plus I'm plus my afraid of heights too but people that can get up a mountain you know and you have a vantage point that not a lot of us you know people that don't climb will never get to see that and you really brought me on that journey in in reading this book you know like I enjoyed so much the books of, of John Krakauer and explaining his you know climbing Everest and stuff like that And I'm so interested in Everest like I really felt that you know, I was there with you, you know, on the mountain, I could feel the cold and and smell the smells. And uh, it it just was really, it's a great experience for people who love those kind of stories. I think they're really going to love this. And, you know, in addition to kind of opening up the world of of mountain climbing, and that for me, you also opened up the, the world of Nepal and the Himalayas, which is another place I've always been so interested in, and it just seems so incredible and magical. And and you say in the book that you've always felt a connection to this yeah. part of the world. And what is it that fascinates you so much about it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting point. Because I felt ever since I was a teenager, or even maybe before that, I felt a very strong connection to the Himalaya and to Nepal. And I, I don't know why. I, I don't know where that came from. But um, I, it was just something I always felt uh, growing up. And This is this this draw to to the Himalaya on a very soul level. And I think, you know, perhaps all of us have this place or a place deep connected uh, to our soul that we that we feel. But um, maybe some of us get to that place and maybe some of us do not. But um, for me, Nepal was that place. And I I just kind of always had that um, that yearning to go there. Um, But it wasn't until I was in my early 30s, you know, 32. This was back in 2012. 2011, 2012, when I first got the chance to go there because, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't necessarily have the, the money and the t- wasn't able to take that big chunk of time off because I was working on my career and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so it wasn't until I was in my early 30s before I finally got there. And, and you know, you mentioned Mount Everest. It's kind of interesting because I had this dream at one time of climbing Mount Everest and um, and I thought maybe that's what I would do when I go to Nepal. And um, But I, was, I wasn't really Certain on what I wanted to do, and that was part of the reason why Nepal kind of kept falling back on this back burner. Because, you know, even though I was drawn to a mountain like like Everest, um, I started questioning, you know, why is it that I want to go there? And and you know, you mentioned John Krakauer's book and the 1996 Everest disasters when all those people died, and um, and it Everest be kind of turning into this um, a bit of a tourist in a way, a tourist attraction where people who perhaps shouldn't be on that kind of terrain are flocking to the mountain now and 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 they maybe they don't have the skill level or, but you know they're there anyways and they're there to climb it just for the sake of standing on on the highest mountain in the world and and um and so that kind of somewhat bothered me um you know the idea that we would treat a mountain as this as this thing that we could shine our ego from so to speak and i'm not saying that everyone's going there for that but but a lot of people i think are and And, you know, for example, I think if Everest wasn't the highest mountain in the world, I don't think we'd have hundreds of people wanting to climb it every year. So um, so I kind of moved away from that. And, And one of the things that I discovered about Nepal was that, you know, it was important for me to go somewhere that was that was off the beaten path, that was kind of out there, not really known about part of what I like about climbing mountains is not going up the route that everybody else is going up, but trying to figure out. know for me the climb maybe starts at home you know looking at the contour maps trying to figure out the right route trying to figure out the right way you know how technical is it what kind of equipment am i going to need all of those things are part of the climb for me rather than just kind of following a beaten path up to the up to some sort of summit right so so when i thought about nepal i thought about well i really want to go somewhere that's that that's not really as known And 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 maybe call it over romantic or (laughs) romanticized, I don't know, but that was kind of the feeling I had. And and so one day we sat down with this um this friend and he had been trekking throughout Nepal for twenty years and and he had gone through into some of the most obscure places that had people hadn't even heard about as much. So uh when we sat down, he talked to us about this this place he called it the Lost Valley of Narfu. And um, and this was back in 2011, and this Lost Valley had just been opened up a few years before that. Before that, it had been closed off to the outside world for generations. Um, nobody from the outside was allowed to go in there. And um, and so he started showing me these pictures, and I thought, in, a, in in that instant, I thought, this is the place, this is the place that I'm meant to go to. And, um, and Chantal was with me, my wife Chantal was with me at that time. We were looking at these pictures together and it was kind of something like we didn't even have to talk about it. We just thought, you know, wow, this, this is this is going to happen. Um, so we talked to our friend and he kind of expressed that, you know, now that the valley had been opened up, um, that it was going to be experiencing some unprecedented change um, because more people coming into the valley now and also villagers leaving the valley going into you know more populated places like Kathmandu and 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 kind of bringing information back so we thought okay well, why don't we put together a little team of artists uh like a photographer a musician a nature artist and uh and, and we'll just kind of learn and observe from the people there and and kind of capture a moment in time um and that was kind of the intention that we set when we were looking at this and and then i, I came across this picture as, as a kind of a fanatic about mountaineering um, and having this dream of having wanted to climb in Nepal for, well, since I was a, a teenager, um, I came across this picture of this pyramid-looking mountain, and and, and it looked like I kid you not, it, it looked like a a white pyramid, um, just coming out of the ground, almost as though some higher divine force had sculpted it um you know cut the sides of the mountain from the top to the valley bottom thousands of meters it is uh, you know just this beautiful white pyramid and uh, I thought wow this is the mountain of my dreams and uh and, and Chantal kind of saw saw it in my eyes in that moment she's like okay Mike you know yeah you found your mountain <laughs> um this is uh, you know we're, let's go to Nepal and, and let's climb that mountain not that Chantal wanted to climb it but she knew that I I, I, that was kind of up the front at the front of my mind and uh and was occupying um you know every thought that I had at that point.
0: And that's really where the story takes off. I mean, I love how where you describe um having the meeting with this guy Mick who shows you the pictures of the Pyramid Mountain and the Lost Valley of Narfu. And I can just I can just see the scene, you know, like it's a movie and you're like okay this is where i'm going to go you know and i thought wow this sounds amazing what's going to happen and as the story unfolds you know it turns out that your uh you know things shifted a little bit where your original intent of climbing the pyramid mountain actually turned out to to not really happen. I don't want to give away I, I, everything of the story because I really want people to read it because it, it's such a, a cool adventure mm-hmm. that you went on. But I could just see kind of the the whole setting of sitting at the table and like the Lost Valley of Narfu, Where is that? You know? <laughs> so <Yeah>. you, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go. It, it sounds amazing. So tell tell us a little bit about the team you put together because you brought some people with you, a musician and an artist as well, and and it also brings up the the topic of what happens when you know, things are opened up and, and people start coming in and things start changing. So tell us a little bit about your team and the people that you brought uh, with you on this trip.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, <laughs> it was a bit of a, a weird mashup because we didn't really know each other um, beforehand. And we, and we, we put it out there, Chantal and I put it out there that we were looking for a photographer, a musician, and an artist, and we kind of saw who would come to the table. And and so we ended up having this, um, yeah, the musician was this kind of uh, (laughs) almost neo-hippie-looking guy, um, you know, long blonde hair and a goatee, and, you you know, he'd wrap his hair in a purple bandana and carry his guitar around wherever he went. (laughs) uh, Did he have dreadlocks? I kind of, I I pictured him like that. I said, oh, did, sorry, he did he have dreads? Oh, dreads! Uh no, he didn't have dreads, but okay, <laughs> uh, but but his hair was kind of like, you know, sort of, yeah, just <laughs> this big. That's kind of blonde, how I golden... pictured him. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, our our nature artist, he was this, um this cowboy from Calgary, you know, he'd wear this big brown cowboy hat and have this handlebar mustache and, you know, just, and he was a bio- biologist. And, and so again, totally different than, um, than the others. And, and, you know, the photographer is this uh, professor, like this geomorphology Polish professor. Um, and so And then Chantal and I, we'd have our, our kind of our, our, we'd be wearing our, our trim fitting, you know, athletic wear. And, and so if you, put us together and line us up we'd look like a total group of misfits and then but then you put us in in Kathmandu in this in the middle of this this city of spec you know this every spectrum of sound and and color and and moving parts and 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 somehow we kind of fit right in <laughs> you know so um, yeah so we, it was a weird dynamic because we we're we all kind of came from different walks of life but we were all connected by this vision and by this, this, this kind of this lost Valley.
0: That's so cool. I could just imagine all of the, the characters, you know, the musician and the photographer and, and the artist, you know, these people all coming together and going to this place that I guess not any Westerners had been. Is, is that true
1: at that time? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't say there had been some people who had gone in there, but, um, but very few, um, yeah, so it wasn't like um, they'd seen a lot of people, like a lot of outsiders come through, but but they had definitely seen some uh, Westerners at that point.
0: Right, right, but just not many. And again, you know, I just want to impress on people, you know, when you're reading it, you really get such an amazing feeling of place, you know, smelling the smells and imagining, you know, the, the weather and the air and all of that. And I mean, just describe the place for us, because it seems, Seems to be like it was forgotten by time in, in a sense. I mean, there at, at the time this may have changed, and I want to find out what it's like today. But at the time that you first went, you know, no phones, no running water, no mm. electricity. I mean, mm. I would have been a little worried. Like, what what happens if something happens? Like, someone runs down yeah. the mountain to get help, or
1: right, right. I mean, you're yeah, you're you're out there for sure. It took a week. It took um, almost a week for us to get into the valley. A week of trekking. And then when we branched off, we had to start on this, anyone who's been to Nepal will will have heard of the Annapurna Circuit, which is one of the most, you know, high traffic trekking routes um, in Nepal. So we had to start on that, but about a third of the way up, we kind of branched off this narrow keyhole gap. And you would miss the gap had you not been looking. It's almost like, um, I don't know, maybe a a hundred yards wide or something, but um, but you'd walk right past it if you weren't looking for it. And... um, And so that's where we branched off into this Lost Valley. And we kind of spent about, I think it was about seven or eight hours. uh, It took us to get up to this little plateau uh, where the first little settlement was. And I remember we got to that settlement and it was like we, I I just looked at the team, all of our team members, we kind of looked at each other thinking like, where did we just walk into? It felt like we had walked back in time, like we were time travelers and we had just stumbled back into... You know, into the seventeenth century or something where you had these these little stone houses and the people you know what they were wearing and how they were how they were living, and everything was you know just authentically connected to the the way that they had been living for the last eight hundred years um at that time and so things you're right like things have changed. we went back in twenty seventeen and there now that had had been opened up that prediction that Mick made back in 2011 came true in terms of the changes that were happening but but at that time yeah no uh, no running water no electricity no toilets even um you know uh the very like it's a very hard life for these people the people are actually semi nomadic they move right with the seasons and the elevation of these settlements um the the two main settlements of Naranfu, uh, they're at 14,000 feet in elevation above sea level. So very hard to grow anything up there. Um, you know, they're dealing with things like avalanches and landslides and, and part of the year during the winter, parts of the, these high passes get cut off so they can't even travel, you know, to particular places. It's just too dangerous. And, and, um, you know, they're, they're raising yaks and, and the, the, the farm animals that they have up there. Uh, just, yeah, the whole scene was like, um, was like something out of a different world (laughs) you know just we we, i guess maybe we should have been expecting it but being there and experiencing that was unlike anything i'd ever experienced before yeah it just sounds absolutely incredible
0: for a place you know to that the fact that you were able to experience that and see it when uh, it's changed i'm sure so much or a lot since that first time. I mean, and those people you said have been living that way for, for centuries, right?
1: Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The way that they were dressed with their, you know, they, they make all their own clothes out of, out of their wool and, and uh, their houses are typically these little stone houses with a, with a dung fueled stove in the middle of the room. And, and that's where all the activity would happen. Um, and again, just not, no technology. I mean, you know, there was no, uh, there were no phones. There were no, uh, as I said, there was no electricity um, even. So any information that they would have would have had to come in from either from people like us coming in with our our smartphones, or you know maybe the odd villager who's leaving. But you know, if you imagine now we're living in a world where information, any information, is in abundance and at our fingertips, right? Um, whereas where they are, especially at that time, um, you know, there were no books, there were no other than the scriptures in the libra- in, scriptures in the in the monasteries, but there were no libraries, there's nothing like that. Um, so they were very isolated from from the rest of the from the rest of the world.
0: Right. it's It just seems so incredible, you know, a world without phones and computers and social media and all of, other, all of that other stuff, you know, everything that that, that implies. Mm-hmm. And and you had a conversation with um one of uh, the people that you met there who had gone to study in India and then came back. He was from that village and you both had a, a conversation of, you know, and, and I guess it's really a difficult thing to think about where on the one hand, Wow, progress is great. We want to help these people, bring them medical care and, and education and information and all of that. On the other hand, he was concerned about losing something really important.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That that young man, so his name is Sonam Dorje, and and he had just come back. Uh, he had left this little village. So the, the most remote village that we had gone to was this village of Phu, and it's one of the most isolated villages in all the Himalaya. And so he, this young man was from that place, and he he left the village when he was 14 years old uh, to go get an education down in India, and so he hadn't seen his parents, he hadn't seen his village in seven years, and and he had just come back right when we were coming in there, <clears throat> and so our paths happened to cross exactly at that moment, um, and I, I won't <laughs> like you said I won't I'll try not to give anything away about the book, but. Um, uh, basically, circumstances forced me to hunker down in this little village of Fu, where I was going through a bit of an identity crisis, and, and and that was the time where I I started connecting more with the locals and with this young man Sanam Dorje. And Sanam so Dorje and I, we we would take these walks together every day, and and he would share with me about his village and about you know Tibetan Buddhism and about the culture and the struggles of the people there and uh, the struggle of survival uh, even and how everyone anyone with money was leaving the village uh the kids you know how difficult it was for them to to get any sort of education beyond the village education so a lot of times the kids um they would just be running around kicking cans around by the time they were 6 or 7 years old <clears throat> they would have to start working in the fields uh very hard labor um and then even by the time especially the girls by the time they're 15 16 at that at that time um they would have to start getting married and having their own kids and and so just a different very different scene um infant mortality rates were extremely high uh, a lot of the kids were malnourished um you could see that their hair was sort of thin and red and, and their cheeks sunburned to the point where they had blisters on them uh like you said there's no health care so so nam dorje said kind of told me about like a lot of the people who were sick or they were injured or, or, you know, some of the elderly, they would just end up dying in their own homes. Um, so yeah, just all of this kind of came to light while we were there and, and, and at the same time, having the time to, to spend with these villagers in their homes because we'd get together and we'd prepare meals together and and we'd dine, you know, they'd invite us in to to eat with them. And, um, and, and you, if you imagine a, a kind of a room, I guess, Maybe the typical size of a, of a North American bedroom, um, you'd have 20 people jammed in there. Um,
0: right. Hold that Hold that thought, Mike, as I want people to really get a sense of the place and the story. The story gets better. More happens. We're going to take a short break. I'm Diane Ray, and we'll be right back on Unity Online Radio. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me after the break, continuing our conversation here. Just so exciting, the story that we're hearing, um, talking with Michael Shaw about his book, a story of karma, and he has been introducing us to the lost Valley of Narfu. Doesn't that sound amazing? <laughs> I mm. just I'd love to see it myself. And it, just the incredible experience that Mike had there. It's such an amazing adventure story and uh, also a, a love story in a sense. And you know, before the break, you were really sharing um, what life is like. In Nepal and that part of the world and the people that live there and and how you were just kind of drawn in and enchanted by you know what what was going on what their lives were like and you know originally uh, you were telling me that you were going there planning to climb this mountain you call the Pyramid Mountain in Nepal Mm. and then things changed when you and your wife Chantal met a young girl named Karma And her family. And you met her when you visited her school in NAR. So tell me a little bit about what happened at that meeting because your lives, you and your wife and their family, everything changed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, what happened? Because I was meant to climb this mountain, and and that, again, without giving too much away in the book, this is, um, again, back in 2012, um, it kind of forced me to deal with all of these questions uh in the village over multiple days and uh questions like you know why am i here in the himalaya and what am i here to do and and why has this dream that i've had since i was a teenager why is that getting shut down and and as i mentioned i was having these conversations with that young man sonam dorje and and kind of learned about the challenges of of the children there and and how difficult it was to get education beyond their village and and, and so forth um and so we decided to go to this other little village called nar uh, and Nar, you know, it was a village there's two main villages in this whole valley and, and Fu was one of them, Nar is the other. And I would not have gone to Nar had I climbed the mountain, but there were all these kind of there was like these sequences of events that were unfolding. And um and even though any everything inside of me wanted to move forward to the mountain, everything outside of me was like kind of guiding me in this different direction, almost like doorways opening. And so I, I kind of chose to trust in that and it brought us to that little village and the little school in the village. Um, when I, when I found out that there was a school there, I thought we should go check this out because I thought maybe there's some hope for these kids in Nara. In in the village of Fu, there, there was no school there. Um, and the kids, you know, they didn't have access to that. So I thought, well, maybe there's something here. So we get to the school and, um, and there is this little seven-year-old girl, uh, teaching English numbers to this group of kids from about seven to, uh, sorry, from about three to seven years old. And, um, and the kids, you know, wearing raggedy clothes and, and sunburnt cheeks and kind of snot dripping down their upper lips and, you know, very like, like mountain kids. Um, uh, they had pulled their, their benches out into the, into the courtyard because in the classrooms, it was too dark and cold. So they wanted to be in the light and warmth of the sun. And so there they were and this little girl teaching English numbers at the head of the class and, and something, you know, we had seen, Hundreds of kids up into that point, but something about this little girl kind of was markedly different. I felt this strange, almost karmic connection to her in in this in in this weird way, and and um and so yeah, you know, I I can't quite explain it, but uh, it was almost like like a like a familial like a familial uh, connection, like there was this familiarity um, about her, so. So we were there, and she was so confidently teaching these numbers. And um, we found the teacher who was, the, you know, who was meant to be teaching, but he wasn't. And he was kind of looming at the back. And he had told us how he was sent there from, I mean, his village was in a totally different part of Nepal. He was about two weeks away from his family and his people. And so he felt like he had been banished to the end of the earth. Um, and so the kids, they kind of caught sight, though, of this guitar that was slung over uh, our musician's shoulder. And they'd never seen a guitar before uh let alone heard one and so uh so they kind of were really interested to to you know for to to have him play some music for them and and so so michael you know he's a bit of an entertainer and he went up there and started teaching them this this jazzed up rendition of twinkle twinkle little star uh the kids got right into it right away they started singing and dancing and and you know it wasn't just the regular twinkle twinkle little star he had all these melodic twists and everything but they they caught on right away and and I guess that kind of motivated the teacher, and the teacher brought out this this drum, and he wanted the kids to dance in front of us one at a time. And he started with this little girl who had been teaching these numbers so confidently. He uh, he told her to dance in front of us, um, and and she kind of she just kind of froze, uh, almost like she was petrified and 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 almost internally crying. Um, and Chantal, she couldn't take it. She, Chantal actually marched right up there. Uh, started doing her best impression of this um, this nepali (laughs) this nepali dance waving her arms and and the little girl like she forgot about everyone looking at her and she forgot about everything other than chantal and the two of them they're kind of their eyes locked and they were just sort of dancing in their own little bubble um the little girl trying to improvise or copy chantal's improvised moves and and chantal was saying to her you know no you teach me and and they were almost like two little spirits kind of um, yeah, dancing in front of these seven thousand meter peaks it was just an absolute beautiful scene and and that 's kind of when I started thinking about you know maybe maybe the reason maybe there 's some sort of deeper reason why i 'm here beyond <clears throat> beyond um this pyramid mountain
0: right. It was such a beautiful scene that that you described and how it unfolds in the book, and just I was able to see that I think is really the theme of you know, letting yourself be open to an experience that you're you're not quite sure what's going to happen. And being being open to that, you know, being open to, you know, a greater force or the universe or whatever you want to describe it as, you know, maybe something else is in charge here, you know, maybe moving the pieces Mm. around and and this is where I'm supposed to be. And that theme kind of intertwines throughout the whole book because you know, you go through, well, there's more, <laughs> I don't know how much I should reveal. Cause I, you know, again, I want people <laughs> to read the story, but you know, where you're up against a lot of obstacles and you kind of have to let the universe work things out or the right people come in your path. and, And I I was going to ask you, do you really believe that? And I've heard this from other, you know, different spiritual teachers that, you know, if you're on the right path, the right people will come to you. The right doors will open. Circumstances will kind of conspire and move in your favor. And I really saw that in your story.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's a natural flow to the environment around us and everything is kind of i mean if you think about nature itself nature doesn't just grow randomly right it has a whole system it has a whole structure to it it kind of you know it all is interconnected in a very complex way and i think that's um that works much in the same way as everything around us and so i think life unfolds with this kind of rhythm or or this sort of flow of this energetic flow around us and and we may have ideas i mean everyone has ideas of what they would like in their life or what they feel like their life should look like um but i think there's there's this high, i don't want to say higher force or deeper force that's also guiding things around and, and and when we work against that force it's almost like trying to i guess paddle a canoe against the current or something um, you know we just end up hitting a brick wall or struggling or suffering or or creating, um, you know, more chaos around around us. But when we tap into that that kind of natural flow, I think that's where we start to realize these um, synchronicities. Like you say, these people kind of coming together, these connections, these strange, or what might seem strange, um, these sort of natural things uh, surfacing. And and that's what a lot of the book is, is about, is kind of, you know, maybe I went to Nepal to climb this mountain, but that... Was not actually the mountain itself was may, perhaps guiding me to a much deeper um, you know fulfilling experience maybe it wasn't about physically climbing it maybe it was about just you know kind of going there um, as a as a beacon um, but getting guided into a much kind of deeper flow and energetic flow of something um something much more profound
0: right I mean that's what I got out of the story was you were open to this incredible experience happening and meeting this beautiful girl and and her family who became and have become like a a second family to you and just the love that you immediately felt. And I think we, we could all maybe understand meeting people that we love and like just immediately, the same as meeting people we don't love and like immediately, you know. <laughs> right, um, yeah. And, and it's it's a beautiful thing when you do come across those beings that you really feel a connection with and, and love and, and like just immediately. And not to get like – I have to be a little woo-woo, but, you know, would you – this was brought up a a couple of times in the book of of past life experience and other other characters in the book that you might have had that connection to i mean what do you what do you feel about that do you think that kind of thing might be possible
1: yeah i i feel like um i mean we are all energy on some level and so i think it's natural to think about how that energy gets transferred across lifetimes um who knows in what ways but there's definitely anyone who will read the book will pick up on that like you say and there's definitely some very strong karmic threads that i have felt through this whole experience threads that have connected me to the people there um to karma the little girl her name is karma um to her her sister pemba and their family and um and and not only their family but the, some of the Tibetan monks and, and some of the higher ranking Tibetan lamas who I've been able to meet over the years, and uh, very strange synchronicities coming together in a way that I can only explain these connections as sort of past life, uh, you know, threads that were created multiple lifetimes ago. Um, that's the only way I can kind of make sense of it in a way that, um, that it makes sense. Right, and you
0: weren't. Were was that ever taught to you as a, a young man? Like, I don't know if your did your family ever talk about stuff like that? Because mine, mine certainly didn't.
1: <laughs> they yeah, no. Talk about reincarnation, you know? Yeah, it wasn't something that we kind of openly talked about at home. I mean, my parents are pretty open minded. They they supported me with many wild ideas I've had over you know over the years. Um, and uh you know i mean my mom will she's had some stories of her own that kind of fall into that into that world um but it wasn't something that like i went looking for or that i i kind of knew was was there it uh it didn't make sense to me at the time when we were there in 2012 and as we kept going back to nepal and developing our relationship with karma and pampa and their family and um you know the Different people I would meet and different responses I had from, from people over there, it just kept reaffirming that there was some something much deeper at work here. Um, you know, some sort of much deeper history at work.
0: Right. And you had to kind of take your what is it like the right brain or you know, the one that's that's being logical and just say, okay, I'm you know, I'm gonna go with my heart, and you and your did and you made some you know incredible decisions in you know getting involved with with karma's family and having or helping karma and her little sister pemba get an education and that's a big part of like the second half of the book and you were on a mission you know to find her a school and all of this and you faced some incredible odds In making that happen, you know, but you did Mm. and you were able to uh, bring her ultimately, there's more that happens, I'm not going to spoil it, to bring her (laughs) to Vancouver, you know, and what an incredible experience for you and your wife to be able to help her kind of blossom in this way and introduce her to a whole other world. I mean, what was that like to see her reaction at seeing the ocean for the first time and, you know, things that we take for granted. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah no it was yeah it's been a very beautiful relationship over the last basically eight years since we met back in 2012 and and um yeah i mean part of the initial goal was to find her you know karma we didn't talk about here i don't want to give away too much but um but she really expressed this yearning this deep yearning to learn at that time when she was seven years old and you know when other kids were perhaps asking for chocolate and candy you know all she wanted was was to learn and um and so Chantal and i we we met with her family, and, and over time, we kind of we, we learned from them that education for their daughters is the biggest blessing that they could ever hope for and ask for. And so we said, OK, well, we can work with you and find the right school. We ended up finding the right school in Kathmandu. That's a whole other story in itself. Mm-hmm. and um, But we knew that it had to be a school aligned with Karma's cultural heritage, because um, where she comes from in the mountains, the mountain dwellers are, are more Tibetan Buddhist. And most of Nepal is actually more Hindu uh, and they operate on, on kind of more of the caste system. And so we knew that if karma w- was placed in any school, <clears throat> you know, there would be at risk of, uh, of, of racial discrimination. So, and, and plus we wanted to, to help her foster her, her, her Tibetan culture and, and the, the Dharma. And so, yeah, so we, we, we worked with our parents to find the suitable solution there. And, and, um, and, and just been we've been kind of, we've been trying to be very mindful about our whole influence into that realm because um, it's interesting. One of the things that her father said to me earlier on was that he said that there's two things uh, that are important to him. First thing is he never wants his daughters to forget where they're from and he never wants them to forget their Dharma. And then the second thing he said was that um, he's very grateful for Chantal and I, because he believes that he's taken them kind of as far as he can, um, and and he believes that they can go farther and faster, you know, sort of under our wings, so to speak. Um, which was really emotionally kind of, <laughs> you know, it was hard to to process that because, you know, Chantal and I here we were um, wanting to help and we want to work with their parents and it's like how do we how do we help these two little girls from a mountain village that have never even seen a bicycle before um and at the same time do it in a way where they get prepared for the modern world when the modern world is encroaching in their village as we speak um but do it in a way where they don't lose sight of their culture and of what's important to them and so yeah, so it's a kind of I guess it's a question that many, many communities are asking all over the world, um, trying to modernize and progress with the world as it keeps spinning faster and faster and do it in a way where they don't lose control of what's important to them, like don't don't lose their identity in, in the process.
0: Right. It really is a, a delicate balance, I would imagine. And I just thought it, as I was reading the story about what an incredible uh you know, act of love, that her parents, you know, for them to make that sacrifice of, you know, they didn't know what would happen, or, you know, how long they would, they would be gone, or, you know, I mean, it just, it it seems so amazing, you know, the trust that they had in you, and Mm. you and your wife, you know, definitely didn't take that lightly, that they were, you know, placing their, you know, beloved children, their daughters, because they not wanted the best for them and that that was just so heartbreaking
1: yeah yeah you raise a very interesting point because um one of the things now so the the girls they did to your point they did come to canada we went back we took them back to their village in 2017 um to kind of talk about the plans for the you know what would what, what would their parents like for them in their future and we you know this topic of cultural exchanges um came up because You know, if I go back to twenty twelve, one of the intentions or the main intention was I just want Karma and her little sister Pemba to have choice, right? If they want to be in the village, that's great or that's fine, but it should be on their own terms. So I'd like them to experience, you know, what is Kathmandu like? What is life like there? What is um what is it like in other parts of the world? You know, how is the world different? And so when we went back in twenty seventeen, we had this conversation about, you know, what would be the possibility of the girls to come here to North America. um, on a cultural education exchange. And her parents really wanted that just, again, it opens up their. They said it allowed, it'll allow them to dream bigger. Right. So it was, it took a small miracle that I will say to, to make that happen. Um, but eventually we were able to get the girls to come visit and they were staying, living with us. Chantal and I almost became parents, <laughs> you know, overnight. And, um, But it was the most beautiful experience i mean seeing karma and pemba you know the the way that they interact the way that their eyes open to this part of the world and as you said like the way the first time they saw the ocean i'll never forget that and just the way that they could kind of perceive this part of the world with the lenses of um of having been in Kathmandu and and coming from their village of course and and um and so we had yeah just an amazing experience here i mean even things like um as simple as 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 being part of the household Right. They grew up in a way where chores weren't really a thing. <laughs> they they were part of contributing to the whole house. So when they were here, they kind of brought that same mindset where they didn't know how to use. They had never seen electronic gadgets like washers and dryers and that sort of thing. But as soon as they learned how to use those things, they were in there doing their own clothes. They were helping us out in the garden. They were, you know, helping us cook. They were it was just a natural process for them. So, um, yeah, so that was very fascinating to uh, to see as well.
0: How amazing just to be able to watch them grow and, and blossom and bring all of these experiences, you know, back with them. I mean, do you feel that the, the people, a lot of the people that leave are the ones that go to try to make their fortune? Do a lot of them come back to their village or do some of them? I mean, did the girls want to?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the girls are still too young to really say where they'll be. So now they've had to, what's fascinating about it is that they, they went back after the cultural exchange here. They went back to their school, SMD school, Shrimangal Dip uh, school in Nepal. And, um, and, and because of COVID, COVID's been hitting Kathmandu very hard. And so all the schools in the Kathmandu Valley have closed for now. So the girls have now gone back to their village and uh, where they're, where they're staying. <clears throat> um, and it's funny because now in the process or in the meantime, They've had internet um, be installed and at and a, and a phone tower, and so we can talk with them. You know, every few days we we speak with them. Um, and so SMD, the school in, in Kathmandu, has been able to run online uh, classes as well, because all the kids are back in their villages. So so they've been able to to benefit from that. Um, but uh, Pemba's teacher, for example, he sent me this one assignment. He was so taken by it. He was so impressed by it, and he sent it to me. And the assignment was, what did I learn? Or what I learned during lockdown, and Pemba, you know she was eleven or twelve years old when she wrote this. Um she said, what I learned during lockdown was how village life is and how much my parents love me, because she said when she said everyone thinks we're from the Himalaya, but we actually left the mountains to go to that boarding school in Kathmandu when they were so young. So when she's now back in the village, she said she's now learned how to take care of her siblings. And how hard it is to survive up there, and how to take care of the animals, and um, and how hard her parents. She's seen now how hard her parents work, and she said that she's realized now how much her parents love her because her parents don't want her to have the same life like them, and and that's why you know they they kind of wanted to um, just to have her. Th- have this education and and so I was like reading this and I was thinking wow you know for a 12 year old to come into that kind of a level of awareness is um is pretty special
0: that really that's unbelievable so beautiful too, you know to hear that and I'm sure they're going to go on both of them to contribute some am- amazing things in this world you know and and hopefully um maybe go back to their village I don't know I mean, you know maybe uh, help them out there. I mean, so now that it's been a few years, you know, because the whole story is over, what was it like five or six year period? From
1: the first uh, time, was... uh, pretty much eight, eight, eight years. Yeah.
0: Yeah, eight years. So I mean, it started when you first went to the valley, And then now, like at this time, where where the book starts to wind up, even father has a cell phone.
1: <laughs> right? You yeah, know, the guy that's yeah, hurting no, exactly. yaks. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, exactly. The modern world has kind of come in. It, it was it went back to mixed predictions back in 2011. You know, when he when he talked to us, talked to us about the rapid change that was coming to that valley, he mm-hmm. was he was absolutely right. And um, and it's changed. You know, when we went back in 2017, it had kind of lost some of that that I don't know want to necessarily call it magic, but it was definitely different. I mean, now where you had. Very few people coming in before. Now there's more foreigners coming in. Uh, There's more tea houses. There's, you know, the cell phone tower. Um, The the infrastructure has improved. They do have some, you know, bit of electricity now. They have TV uh, satellites with one station. So, you know, it's definitely changing quickly. And, but, you know, it goes, it's funny. I, I heard something the other day where a parent was talking and he said that the best thing parents can give their children is the gift of resilience. And it kind of got me thinking about Karma and Pemba and how blessed I feel for them because being able to see the world through different lenses like that and and start asking questions at a young age, you know, why is the world the way it is in in the village and and in Kathmandu and in North America and and start to kind of contrast those lenses. Um, And then, you know, that information or those experiences will then inform them, in terms of what's important to them and and how they contribute to the world in some way. So I, I just, yeah, I feel very blessed for the experiences that they're getting at these very young ages.
0: Well, I'm really, I'm blessed that I was able to grab a hold of this book and get you on the show to share your story. It's been so great to talk with you. And we just have a minute or so left. But, I mean, I could see the movie of this you know I've already got <laughs> I've got some casting in mind you know maybe we could talk about that <laughs> you know, I could. Yeah. who could be the character of you and your wife and um and of the girls and the family it's just such a, a beautiful story and what are your plans now do you have more mountains to climb and what what are you going to be doing now
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of out there in the mountains. And for me, it's not necessarily about getting to the summit anymore, but it's just being out there in the mountains and in the nature and and having that connection. Um, I don't really have any sort of big mountain objectives objectives per se. But the biggest thing for me is to be able to get back um, either to Nepal or have the girls come back here and just to be able to see them again. And uh, because, you know, we miss them hugely. (laughs) And uh, even though we're talking with them over the Skype and that sort of thing, but, um, yeah, I'd love to be able to see them again and, uh, and be with them again. Well,
0: it's such an amazing story, and I wish you and your family and Karma and Pemba and, and everyone all of the best. And I really hope people pick this up. I think it's a beautiful story that really deserves to be heard. A Story of Karma, Finding Love and Truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. Mike Shaw, And thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. Yeah, really, really enjoyed being on the show.